Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Lower Decks podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Ahoy, ahoy, Pete. Meld that flesh, girl. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, featuring Lower Decks for episode 110, No Small Parts, comes to you now via spiky pencil twirl-around thingy. Pete, here we are podcasting from our respective homes on New York Comic Con Saturday. A rare thing, but in these strange times, New York Comic Con, of course, uh, of course all virtual. And uh, the Star Trek Lower Decks slash Star Trek Discovery slash Surprise and at the End uh, panel has already happened. We've already podcasted it, so wherever you are listening to this, be it FantasticGeek.com, the Disco feed, or the Pop Culture Podcast feed, uh, you've probably already heard us discuss Star Trek Universe at NYCZ. Yeah, the uh, surprising, but not so out of character uh, news here that uh, Kate Mulgrew is uh, coming back to Star Trek, albeit in the animated uh, Star Trek Prodigy that will be coming to Nickelodeon. The biggest news to come out of that, but we covered that. We cover the Lower Decks panel that is finale inclusive and a little bit on season two. Uh, we held back for our, um, our regular podcast today and, of course, Discovery. Yeah, it really was a great panel, particularly a lot of these virtual ones are shorter than not. So to put both of the uh, the current Star Trek properties together, the, the currently airing ones, uh, also the opportunity to look ahead to the second season of Lower Decks, as you said. No news on Discovery Season 4, even though all but the official announcement is in place. And uh, altogether, a well-produced panel. I think we'll get the news with the third season premiere this coming week. Uh, they are doing things in Toronto. There are pictures of it. People are there. Uh, yeah, all but official. And, uh, of course, later this week on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we will be talking about all things New York Comic Con that isn't Star Trek, uh, both what we checked out in general virtually, and indeed, Pete, some of the things that we miss a little bit from the real in-person thing. Indeed, and uh, I gotta gotta admit, you know, I've, I've been, like a lot of things, nostalgic for the things we can't do right now. It's going to be all that sweeter when we can get back to it. So, Pete, we will save some of the other Star Trek Discovery uh, info from that panel for our Season 3 podcast preview that will be coming oh in the next three or four days uh eyeing tentatively wednesday uh and indeed that panel showing the first couple minutes of the episode so we're already ahead in the future with that pete let's head to the ready rundown program complete enter when ready the ship is around beta three hey it's those landrew people that need to be checked in on and they're back landrewing all this stuff is from the TOS era, those old scientists, as Ransom calls them. Still, on Beta 3 is Mariner, sharing art supplies, and Boimler's in on it too. He takes off his uniform top, communicator included, uh, and that means that he's missing Ransom's hails from the bridge. Boimler and Mariner, and the bridge crew by proxy, all hear that Mariner's mom is the captain, and Captain Mommy is angry. Cut to the USS Solvang, another Cali-class ship, under fire by a massive enemy who puts a grappling hook on an engine nacelle. The Solvang goes to warp, and the ship warps itself apart, a serious and beautifully animated moment in the show. Back on the Cerritos, Tendi is welcoming an exocomp ensign. She's got a normal name, calculated to be pleasing, Ensign Peanut Hamper, who's all klutzy in shuttle repair but can rock a micro-suture. Freeman and Mariner are hashing out their secret, or former secret, and Ransom's now tiptoeing around Mariner. But he's told to be hard on her, to be a real hard... You know what, let's just move on from that. Mariner's now viewed differently as a minor celebrity on the ship, but she's not comfortable with that. Even Boimler would like her help to get him promoted to the Sacramento, a reminder that he is upwardly mobile. Both go to see Ransom. He's not sure who to promote. 
The ship warps to investigate a partial distress call from the Solvang and finds the Solvang utterly destroyed, the attacking ship putting its hooks on the Cerritos. They power down, yet lose a nacelle. It's Packleds, led by Jacobog. The ship starts to get carved up. They have no options, and they need a dangerous half-baked solution from Mariner. She puts together that they have an open code system and has Rutherford get a virus going. He's getting help from Badgie, with safety protocols turned off. Meanwhile, the ship is being boarded, and the bridge crew plus Mariner and Boimler attack with contraband weapons. Freeman is wounded and brought to sickbay, where Rutherford also has the virus ready. They need a spacefaring, hard drive-carrying solution. Peanut hamper! But she's passing. Peace out, and she beams out. Rutherford puts the virus into his implant, and he and Shax shuttle over. The virus is uploaded quickly, then slowly. Badgie will only let it be fully loaded once Rutherford is dead. Shax rips the implant from Rutherford and puts the ensign in the shuttle. The virus fires, and the pack-led ship explodes, killing Shax. On the Cerritos Bridge, the day is saved, but three more pack-led ships show up. Then the USS Titan arrives, firing explosively, with Riker and Troy on the bridge, full TNG theme blaring. Sometime later, the ship's being repaired, but no cosmetic changes and no reflective Aztec panels. Yay! Rutherford is waking up for the first time, with Tendi reading to him. However, he's forgotten her. It's a moment of excitement for Tendi, who can be best friends with him all over again. Elsewhere in the ship, Shax is memorialized in a brief but surprisingly poignant moment. Freeman keeps his earring and places it in her ready room. In there, with her daughter, Freeman notes that Starfleet drops the ball on Beta 3 and with the packleds. Freeman needs Mariner to push the ball towards the realistic, not the best-case scenario of Starfleet code. In the bar, Freeman and Riker catch up, he the former mentor. Ransom is told by Troy that he's deeply insecure, and he's willing to hound dog with that too. The core four of the lower decks catch up, and Riker notes that Ensign Boomler was a big help. Sometime later, Boimler is putting on his lieutenant junior grade pip with a first contact uniform. He's on the Titan now, and Mariner's pissed. Still, Boimler's Titan bridge crew now, as the superior ship warps away to end the season. Red alert. All hands stand to battle stations. Pete, with that incoming threat analysis, I can't believe what I'm about to say. Are you ready to talk about the number one threat this week? Those dumb, blonde-headed packleds. I mean, to go there, and you had to imagine, I was thinking as we were watching this season, love for the packleds to show up. And they held them for the greatest possible effect. Matt, they're not jokes anymore. They're not. And the choice of the packleds here, it is it is amazing not it's amazing all the levels that it works on, and it's it's uh, a great snapshot at how Lower Decks has operated all season, which is the Packlets show up as a self-contained threat in this episode. It's also a cool callback. It's also kind of a timeline update in terms of things not being static anymore with them. They've evolved. It also becomes informative to the overall arc of the season in terms of they were declared to be a non-threat just like the folks on Beta 3. Uh, Starfleet has it wrong, but you can't go against the rules. This is why you need Mariner on the ship, why you need this partnership. Uh, and then, Pete, if one wants to add to it, shall we say, uh, a real-world connection to, oh, there aren't people like that anymore, they're not a threat. Hey, surprise, they're a bigger threat than you thought and need to be dealt with. There's that possible connection, too. It works on every level. Yeah, you can make the packlids go again. Uh, we also have, again, in another great puzzle piece that fits into the story, we have Peanut Hamper, uh, the exocomp. So fun callback to TNG there. Uh, cute, adorable character. Uh, gives an opportunity for Tendi to shine. You know, oh no, Peanut Hamper is doing a better job than you would at suturing. That means I'm a great mentor. You know, it echoes back to the main character but then becomes this very authentic, hey, Peanut Hamper showed up just in time to be the story solution. And Peanut Hamper says, nope. And I would even add to that, Pete, 
the fact that she gets to the very, very end of the last scene kind of still hanging out there, uh, I don't think that we're sympathetic because you were derelict on your duty. Sorry. I mean, so much was made about Michael Burnham being Starfleet's first mutineer. Uh, hello, peanut hamper? Um, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Pete, I get, see, now you have me thinking. Because this show takes place, as I say, week after week, it's the prime Star Trek universe, but it's animated stories, so you get stuff that's kind of, you know, it's kind of uh, uh, tweaked ever so slightly, uh, kind of like with the, uh, what's that called, the whammy stick or whatever on a, on a guitar. Like, it's just ever so slightly bent the towards the bar. silly. What is it? The whammy bar. The whammy bar. There you go. Um, what What would they do with Peanut Hamper? You know, I mean, I guess we could assume Pete, she would be drummed out of the service, right? I mean, you don't get, I don't know if this qualifies as mutiny or dereliction or what the proper uh, Starfleet charge would be. But clearly, once she's found, she's getting at the very least thrown out of the service and maybe is going to see some jail time as well. Drumhead. Um, the best part is Pete, she's kind of shaped like a drum too, so... Um, we also, of course, get the the joyous return of Badgie, um, a character that we definitely speculated would return, but here just returns as that fully-fledged evil character, and that evil is put to use, and again, it's a puzzle piece that just fits perfectly. And now, I think, freed from the holodeck, the, shall I say, confusion of the situation which we last see him i'm not sure and i really really hope we're not done with badgie well that's what's nice i mean sci-fi in general you can do the twin you can do the computer copy the holodeck copy the transporter copy in general obviously badgie prime for a uh, you know some some kind of holodeck backup file but you know you don't have to say goodbye to these characters uh however pete let me add one to the list here let me call an audible um, one more threat, Captain Dayton, who who buys it at the end, and I think she's definitely gone for good. Pete, how many Starfleet captains have lost two ships in the same year? <laughs> I mean, Picard lost two, right? He lost the Enterprise D and he lost the Stargazer. I was going to say three, but the, the Enterprise E was only badly damaged. Um, he lost two, but at least it was like 30 years apart or 25 years apart. Dayton... Two total losses of a ship. Pete, the Rubido was lost on Stardate 57752.6. So that means seven-tenths through the year she lost one ship. And then we don't get to Stardate in this episode, but it, you know, using the season Stardate convention, um, we're probably looking at Stardate 579-something-something. So in less than two-tenths of a year, she lost two California-class ships. And a brand new one at that. And uh, it's it's a convention that only works in this particular form of the medium. You couldn't do that in live action. It'd be way too off the tone we've, we've come to expect. I mean, will we get a live action Star Trek comedy at, at some point? I mean, it, it's a place to go, potentially. Um, but, yeah, I mean... Um, R.I.P. Dayton and her crew. Pete, with that, let's get the long-range sensors looking at some theories. Uh, I know you already teased perhaps the return of Badgie. Uh, what else do you have in mind for theories in this, the 788th episode of Star Trek ever? I love the animated series use of uh kirk and spock on the pad that was you know the animated series does not get the respect it deserves um you know the the idea that people have picked and chosen what's star trek and and what's not that you know has become an issue today began then and here again all Star Trek is Star Trek. Yeah, and just as you said, that that great nod to the filmation style there, and 
you know, it's the one animated show calling back to the other. I don't need to, I need to draw a map here, but it's that sense of history. And I know we get time and time again from Mike McMahon. Uh, he having the writing credit for this episode, of course, we just get this, we get a sense of reverence that with all due respect to the Brian Fuller, Berg Harbert's era of discovery, the more modern, you know, Kurtzman assumes control and Kurtzman, Kurtzman crew, I think they all they have a deep, deep respect for Star Trek. You know, in Fuller's case, he was a Star Trek writer and all of that. But I don't think that they they don't bow at the altar of Star Trek the way Mike McMahon does, and it works for this. Do I you know, does does Discovery in another in another version of it, does Discovery need to be as reverential and say, Hey, we're gonna make sure that we have fifteen classic Trek references in every episode? It's just a different flavor of show, and I think part of the wisdom in general of Star Trek universe having all this broad stuff that you can, you know, th- this is this is the dessert of Star Trek. Lower Decks is the dessert after you know some of the more challenging things. And to throw a reference on top of Landru to gamesters of Triskelion and that kind of stuff. So to to reach into that. I, I hate to use the, you know, the acronyms, but that um, Ransom uses TOS, but he uses it because it's those old scientists. Again, it, it's so um, self-reflective and, and evident of what they're doing and really just works. Yeah, I, and I mean, it's... This is an episode digging into the celebration of of Star Trek and fittingly so in the season finale, fittingly so for this, you know, this uh, having completed the journey, Pete, the long road, as referenced by Riker. <laughs> it's um, just another one, man. <laughs> absolutely. By the way, Pete, while we're talking references, did you notice the official Star Trek helmet? Uh, are you kidding me? I mean, I'm, I'm up at 5 a.m. watching this episode the other morning and from the moment that the titan gets mentioned being in range i'm like please 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 okay um not that it was predictable uh if if you want to say it is in the in the best and most fulfilling way um and to circle back to mariner's contraband okay most of which we've seen but now that spock's helmet is there Okay, and that Billups is holding it. And the one thing I would have gone with, and and maybe it's it's best, you know, I'm sure it was a discussion in the writers' room, and and maybe it's like a lot of things, you know, you don't take it too far, but that he would put it on, and you know, whatever powers it might have, or maybe that he now has it, and you know, that's a season two story that it's in engineering with the light on top of it with <laughs> some kind of siren i don't know but it was just too great a reference to not use pete maybe this isn't the deepest of theories but let me just say we've spent some time talking about the uniforms and the ever-shifting uh ununiform uniform uh situation to see here that the the um first contact era uh uniforms are side by side with the uh lower decks style yeah. uh, to me as somebody who can who can lean towards the you know timeline pedantic and the the you know well treat it like it's a real world kind of pedantry there to sit and go oh okay they didn't exactly change uniforms it's like how the ds9 and tng uniforms were side by side for a time again or a super minor thing as we've seen exactly exactly and look the the foundation of all of this is the needs and desires of TV and film production yeah. to have a new look and then secondary merchandising opportunities and, you know, all that kind of real world showbiz stuff. But it was just kind of, I don't know, it, it was nice to, to be like, it is kind of weird that these uniforms keep changing. Nope, they, they, they're side by side in whatever transition period is going on before they change again in two years for the Picard flashbacks. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, I mean, come on, the costuming that they wear because everybody tends the nature of uniforms to dress the same. 
um, it, it draws the eye and it begs the question. At, at some point, it'd be great. I mean, again, we've had on Discovery, oh, you guys got the colorful uniforms first. They're just being unfolded, un, un, unveiled throughout the uh, fleet, whatever it is. It, it, might, it might be fun at some point, you know, a Starfleet tailor, like, oh, you know, it takes six months to get it to everybody. Or the captain of a vessel gets to determine who's replicating what or what have you. Um, but yeah, it, it is incongruous and that definitely drew my eye as well. What other theories are on your space radar? I love that they took the cliffhanger from the previous episode about Boimler finding out Mariner's secret and did not make it the sole thrust of this episode. That was a real fear that I had. It's going to be the mom episode. And while that stuff all gets dealt with, like it's done best, it gets done with organically in the story instead of now we're going to have 22 minutes about mom is captain. Yeah. And add to that, you know, the only bit of preview I saw because I wasn't able to quick away, uh, click away fast enough due to the, uh, you know, the way the last episode ended and whatnot. The only thing I saw was uh, Boimler confronting uh, Mariner about it. So I was tickled pink that here we are a minute and a half into the episode and that scene is out of the way. And then, as you say, we're kind of we're dealing with it up front. And I, I think if nothing else, it's another example about how the show the show has 45 minute episode stories in it. It's just got all the talky parts or the the slow things or whatever it is. They kind of, I don't want to say jam it into, but they boil it down to the best 25 minutes that they can in order to make things explosive and moving and, and have all that oomph. I do have to take the show, this episode tonally to task coming out of the credits, the first act even though you you really truly don't do the act structure so much in a in a half hour comedy it, it's you know less but the USS Solvang act in the Kala system okay you need to bump off the ship and everything there and the warping apart but it feels awkward in the total placement of it and I don't know how much of that is, okay, well, we left on a cliffhanger of uh, Boimler knows the mother secret and we've got to deal with that. So you can't start the episode with solving, blowing apart, and then getting to the lighter stuff. I get it. But it, it felt awkward with the way it was presented to me. In film and TV in general, it drives me crazy when there is kind of a stuttery slow motion shot because to me that says uh after you shot it you decided you wanted it to be slow motion uh which is to say as opposed to filming it at a higher speed then you run it at regular speed and it looks slow motion uh a i doubt that was a huge concern for lower decks just because of the digital workflow nature uh, and B, having generally having had the time to make a minor change like that. That said, we know that much of this production was done uh, under lockdown and, and all of that. So perhaps the kind of the, the, the faux uh, slow motion of its destruction uh, was unintentional. Or maybe they were going for that jittery thing just to say, this is not beautiful. This is, I mean, it is beautifully animated. Don't get me wrong, but it's not meant to be beautiful. It's meant to be kind of stunning and kind of jarring and unsmooth because it is this terrible little moment in the episode um mirrored towards the end with the the shack's funeral scene in terms of kind of being serious and being poignant but you know pete we've talked about you know the concern obviously long since put to bed on the podcast but you know the concern of oh this is rick and morty track and it's fart track and things like that the complete opposite end of those concerns was that brief moment when the solvang was destroyed and it was Again, it was kind of this terrible and beautiful visual, but it was like, oh my goodness, they just really killed all those people for real. It's real stakes amidst the animated craziness. And that moment for me is the part that works the best in that sequence. And again, you know, we know that Dayton and her crew are 
you know, bumbling and they got a new ship. We need to bump them off and everything there. But I, I just found the majority of the sequence um, awkwardly placed. So let's let's go from early in the episode to later on in it. I know in the uh, in the lower decks near Comic Con panel, uh, there was sadness expressed that Shax has been killed off, and they they appear largely committed to uh, the character being dead. Now, of course, it being science fiction, as I said before, there's the twin brother, there's the holodeck copy, there's the you know we're gonna. It, we're going to go back. Rutherford's going to go back and read his logs and, and, you know, the actor could appear, but, uh, thoughts there, Pete, on the permanence of Shax's death. I mean, come on in science fiction, they can do anything. Um, that the best day of Shax's life by his own admission winds up being what we believe at this point in time to be his last is good. Uh, that he's, on a vessel that blows up with a malfunctioning hologram that may or may not have had access or could get access to a mobile emitter. Um, and I don't think there's anybody in the audience that wants to be done with shacks and or Badgie. So I fully expect they will be back. And if they're not back, I want them brought back. I will disagree about Shax. Uh, I think the character, the, the character of Shax, I think we will not see alive again. Now, if you bring the voice actor back as somebody else and say, hey, instead of doing big yell voice, you know, can do something else with your voice acting register so it's so we kind of get you. You know, Pete, similar to Kenneth Mitchell as Cole and Colshaw um, and things of that regard. You know, I think that you could have the actor back, no problem. Uh, it was such a sad moment, short as that funeral was, but I kind of feel like he's going to stay dead. I mean, yes, his body is in the torpedo uh, container, a la Star Trek II, and yes, we've seen a torpedo container bring somebody back, albeit in the holodeck story from last week's episode, but it was such uh, a good and moment. And in Star Trek Three. <laughs> and in Star Trek, oh yeah, so by implication in Star Trek Three. Um, I don't know, I, I think it will be best if he stays dead, but my goodness, let's bring the actor back ASAP. Let, let's do it. Uh, Captain days are a thing throughout the rest of the fleet, huh? Uh, apparently so. And I guess that's, I wonder if, I wonder if Captain Picard day was the first. Surely it must've been the first, but to me, it seems like a nice tradition and a nice, I don't know, a nice thing for morale, particularly on the larger ships, particularly on the ships with children, if that still is a thing. You know, I think perhaps Starfleet has backed off that a little bit just after the, the heady days of the, uh, you know, of the uh, Enterprise D launch and then all the Borg stuff and Dominion stuff and whatnot. Maybe they've pulled back on it. But yeah, let's celebrate the captain as the, the, the figurehead on our ship. Let's see Freeman Day in season two. And it's mariner's worst nightmare you know it, it's it's the day she doesn't want to have off um that could be a lot of fun yeah absolutely and i think a story like that would also give us it would give us story space to explore um the 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 fixed relationship between the two you know she might be uncomfortable with captain freeman day but she's not going to fight it the way she might have in the first season the most demerited officer in the fleet mariner is that hyperbole or is that actuality i'm going to take that at actuality uh we've discussed before how mariner is you know she's been around in starfleet longer than the other ensigns and to me that would make sense whether it's in the in the most literal notion of, you know, demerited in terms of backward in rank, or perhaps they have a, you know, an official merit or demerit system where, look, she's got 47 of them and others, you know, have less. Uh, but I would buy that as, as literal. And I think that that also feeds, feeds the sad yet understandable yet still sad shame that Freeman as her mother must have that Freeman is this accomplished captain her her uh, significant other and accomplished admiral and here they have this massive screw-up daughter ransom has some really 
funny lines in this episode and it was cool to have the panel obviously filmed the comic-con panel prior to the release of this episode but with full knowledge of it and jerry o'connell talking about how it's fun to go into a booth and say inappropriate things yeah and i think you know pete best case scenario in the in the world of the 24th century you know it's something we discussed before where ransom can be can be randy off of duty and be making passes and sometimes they work and sometimes they're shot down but everybody is clear in terms of uh participation and consent and uh the, the work hierarchy and and when everybody's on duty the star trek times have figured out how that's 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 a non-issue you know and side note we also got hints of that in in tng uh as well with Riker and troy on again off again etc um but I think you then put it through the lens of the modern day where I, I think a, a, a gentleman of the world like Jerry O'Connell knows, you know, he, he's old enough to remember the times where, you know, certain things you could just say because boys are boys and, and ha ha ha. Now we're we do much better with keeping those keep, keeping those things outside of company where where it's inappropriate or, or not uh, giving the wrong impression, that sort of thing. But to have a character where all those problems have been solved and he can just kind of sort of, I mean, he's not hitting on Deanna Troy, but he's, he's hitting near Deanna Troy and for him to shoot <laughs> him down and for him to say, Oh, take my worst elements. Uh, you think beta Zeds would be turned on by that. Let's make it happen. And then the out and out appropriateness of a guy, a crewman who believes that uh, Wolf three, five, nine was not perpetrated by the Borg the changelings don't exist and that there was no dominion war. Yeah. I mean, gee, I wonder what Mike McCann, Mike McMahon and company are trying to comment about, you know, there's your, it's, it's, it's a funny, funny joke on its own. Uh, then you start to have that light bulb go off where you say, Ooh, they're having some commentary about these things in star Trek that are so obviously true. And this guy doesn't believe it. Oh, Oh wait, it's, it's sad and it's funny at the same time. You know, it's it's a great example of that Star Trek aesthetic. Shax needs to return, if for nothing more than we now know that Dr. Tana sweats him. Uh, yeah, and uh, how shall I put this, Pete? I'm a little concerned about the interspecies uh, mating situation that there might be. Uh, some of the references that that, that she made. Uh, I know that Star Trek has explored that a little bit already. I think uh, Worf and Dax, um, and I have no doubt that uh, that the potential love that might have bloomed between Doctor Tana and uh, Lieutenant Commander Shax, uh, that they would have figured out how to transfer that love of the heart to love of the body. Um, uh, Pete, I'm telling you, I do think that that we won't see him again. Uh, cut to me a year from now when Shax returns and I go back and listen to this podcast and go, oh, there I am with all the evidence and reaching the exact opposite conclusion than the truth. But I'm sticking with it. R.I.P. Shax forever. If we can't get a full on, not graphic, but, you know, able to go there interspecies mating episode on Lower Decks, where can we? Um... <laughs> you make a good argument for it, I guess. Um, I think, uh, and and for life of me, I can't remember the exact line, but I think that, I think that that Cation uh, physiology uh, uh, being coital hooks. There it is. That that Pete. That makes me, uh, fr frankly, Pete. That makes me as a man a little uh, concerned for Shax. I'm assuming that Bajorans are. Uh, closer to the human model than Cations are. Um, it might not work out well, but um, that said, Shax, he's a rough and tumble guy. You know, you, you figure it out. You figure it, you, it's what the heart wants, Pete. It's not for me to project my heteronormative, human normative uh, uh, sensibilities on a potential Bajoran Cation uh, love pile. <laughs> Speaking of pie, not piles, uh, Billups replicates Q 
key lime hand pies, okay? Key lime pie is my favorite pie, maybe my favorite dessert. Um, these are very sparingly a thing, and this is why we need replicators. The idea that someone who cannot cook apart from like toast and ice and microwaving things and, and grilling hot dogs uh, could say into a device, uh, computer, key lime, hand pie, and, and have it, again, why this needs to happen. We have the communicator uh, with the cell phone. I'm sure we're going to get, we'll be wearing, we already do wear things that we can communicate through. Um, we have medical scanners. We need replicators, stat. Well, I do have some logistical concerns about how the meringue would rise in a hand pie, but that's why in the 24th century they, you know, they figured this stuff out, Pete. Light speed is easy. Uh, dilithium reconstruction chambers, no problem, thanks to uh, Queen Poe uh, 100 years prior. The, the whole meringue rise in a hand pie, a key lime uh, hand pie, no problem there. It's, it's, it's the beautiful future of tomorrow. Why does Boimler produce a paper letter of recommendation? Um, maybe there's a certain ceremony to it, a certain kind of, you know, officiality to it. Um, I think Picard's Shakespeare book, you know, I think even some of the, the, the physical stargazer model, you know, yes, it's the far off future, but I think that that makes, um, that makes the physicality of important things all the more important i mean heck pete i mean think about you know we we get all these emails all the time uh and, and you you can like what's more valuable that signed picture or that selfie with the celebrity and i know there might be discussion back and forth as to uh, what's more important for one person versus the other but there's a reason those autographs still sell it's because it's that physical thing mariner with the affectation of fixing her hair to be more proper and then undoing it to be herself was really well done. Yeah. Particularly since, you know, we've seen with Mariner, we've seen with Ensign Rowe, et cetera. We've seen where, you know, on the one hand, these ships seem not to be super strict in terms of, uh, what do I want to say? The best of the best, you know, physical presentation in terms of your uniform being just right and shine those boots. Uh, Pete, maybe it's the constantly changing uniforms in in uh, this era of uh, the 24th century. But I digress. Her kind of with the casual ponytail, it's a it's a simple animation visual way to say that there's a certain level of casual to her, but still kind of ready to work. Uh, then you you go with the bun, and it's more. I don't know, more formal looking, more professional looking. Um, so I think if nothing else is just driven by some basic kind of animation or if it was live action, just kind of some basic, uh, you know, hair and makeup ways to communicate how the character is feeling on the inside. The sight gaggery in this episode, the contraband later on, you know, Sulu's foil is one of the things that, that Boimler grabs. Um, but that, all of Ransom's first officer trinkets are weights. Again, just chef's kiss. Yeah, I mean, in a show that clearly has been made for modern times and to give, uh, you know, to give some diversity where in the, pa in the past there has perhaps not been as much, Ransom just fits in perfect as the man's man. He's a dude bro who wants to meet up with ladies he wants to keep those muscles looking good uh when it's when it's bone crunching time for baddies you know he's willing to set his uh what is it his fists to stun and his kicks to uh uh to uh to kill that sort of thing and pete i guess it's a reminder too the future is open to those dude bros as well and we see him as this completely effective officer there's never any whiff of him being uh, inappropriate either with his relationships or indeed with how he uh carries himself he he's proud to be a number one he's proud to be supporting the captain hence him unsure which officer to send to the sacramento because he wants to support his captain and do the best things for the officers beneath him and he's not sure whether that means mariner or boimler how about the shuttlecraft sequoia and its arc over this first season. 
Uh, yeah, I did see some art on it in this episode. Uh, presumably, it's been through it's been through quite a bit. Uh, although Pete, I guess it's in better shape than than those two California class ships that we've lost along the way. So I guess props for the little shuttle that could. And R.I.P. Uh, port nacelle of the Cerritos. Yeah, but I feel like those are so interchangeable. You know, uh, I, I did really, really love the line. You know, to not do the Aztec stylings. Just for me personally, I've never liked that look. I like the look of the solid, cohesive model, whether it's the 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 TOS uh, Enterprise or whether it's the uh, you know the next generation model that looks even better in HD. Uh, to put those panels in there, it just looks too busy. Then you get into the TNG movie era where it's kind of turned into a design. I know it's the modern way of things, and it's makes stuff shine and makes the texture more interesting and whatnot but i'm with captain freeman just keep it your basic you know battleship gray and you'll be fine the pack lids and their amassing of all the ship pieces presumably having access to the cerritos port nacelle that could be a, a fun story turn down the road um but you know, hard to pause all access and, you know, be able to see in the, in the tiny, tiny window, but the piece that jumps out at you that they have of their one vessel of Jacobog's vessel is very clearly the Riemann scimitar wing from Nemesis. Well, Pete, that's when we're back in this, uh, I don't want to say uncanny valley, because that's not a compliment, especially when we talk about animation. But we're in this gray area of, is every single thing that we see literal, or is it, you know, is it on the animation side of the story, or is it on the live action side of the story? Uh, you know, every last joke, every last little thing, you know, some of it is just, you, you say, it's because it's a story, and you have a chuckle, and you move on. Are we working on a larger connection here? Have the Packlids somehow taken out a, you know, an advanced, I mean, advanced, I guess that's relative because it was just a mining ship, but, you know, a powerful mining ship. Have they taken out a ship like that? Or is it just there's an animator on staff who was in charge of putting this ship together and, you know, loved Star Trek 09 and, and incorporated that design? Again, it's that. I will kind of say Valley, not Uncanny Valley. It's that Valley where it doesn't need to be something in the middle like, oh, it's a cool design, but they're setting up a Romulan story. It really could just be as simple as, hey, somebody who loves drawing for Star Trek took this design and plopped it in there. First contact day, it makes so much sense that they would have salmon given that the Vulcans landed in the Great Northwest. Uh, you know, I had not put that together until now, um, but it's, you know, it it's another example of how Mike McMahon digs so deep into this Star Trek that he loves that so, he or somebody on his staff, he, he, the show he oversees, has taken the time to say, what are the cultural effects of First Contact Day, even 150 years later, whatever it is, um, what are those cultural effects that really still resonate for humans and something that if you've never been to earth, but you're human, or if you were born there and since then and you're on a star base, another planet, whatever it is, something that really culturally resonates. Of course, they're having salmon on first contact day. The pack lids that they can't read, that they believe that every vessel is the enterprise <laughs> and taking it even further that when they attack their battle cry is, pack lead pete they're not the brightest ones out there um but again to whatever degree that the show is doing more than having a laugh uh, comedy being you know something opposite than your expectations happening um you know that to whatever degree that there's social commentary and we thought they were a joke but they actually represent a threat and a threat that we were sleeping on that's maybe one of the more poignant takeaways from this episode, which is largely animated fun and, you know, technological dabs and zips and zoops and great animation. 
there's that extra little bit of social commentary in there if you want to go looking for it. Well, Matt, thank goodness Marina Surtees loves CBS All Access. You know, it's so funny. Just this morning, I was listening back to um, one of our Discovery podcasts uh, from September, October 2018, uh, where I know what it was. We were wondering, who is it who plays uh, Tilly's mother in the first Star Trek short track? Uh, could it be her? And we were both like, no way Marina Sirtis returns to Star Trek, not after she spent the summer going to a convention and saying... A, it's terrible that you need to pay for Star Trek on CBS All Access. And B, there is no valuable Star Trek after The Next Generation. The original series got it started. Next Generation said everything that you need to say. Everything else is imposter Star Trek. And still she took their call and cashed their check. So I think, Pete, that shows evolution. And Pete, before we go on, just to be clear, that was... that. You were pro uh, Marina Sirtis as Tilly's mom, and I was saying it's going to be a tough time when when she has spoken out against modern Star Trek. So I just want to make that clear for the listener. I was on one side, you were on the other. Yeah. Uh, Rutherford's memory here, a new implant coming? Not sure. I know you talked before we got rolling this morning about um, a screen grab of the implant coming off. And that it's it's fairly graphic. Um, I love that as a story construct, it shifts into it steers into Tendy's eternal optimism. Oh my God, we get to become best friends all over again. Yeah, and again, this notion that Mike McMahon can write a 45 minute full, you know, one hour Star Trek episode and then distill it to the most important 25 minutes of it to have Rutherford experience this memory loss. It's not as big as losing Shaxx, but I think the flip side is we know that Rutherford is a main cat, you know, main character and Shaxx was a supporting character to have Rutherford pay this price. You know, on a certain level that hurts to whatever degree I'm, saddened that this animated character after 10 episodes blah 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 but that hurts and to have tendy turn it around with that optimism you get both the sting and you get the the solve for the 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 sting so you kind of get both within five seconds of each other and, and that's the speed that the show works at but you get again you get the price paid and then you also get kind of the kind of the the notion uh, perhaps like a la the end of Star Trek Nemesis. Oh my goodness, we've said goodbye to Data forever, but the voyage continues, and we're and it's kind of sort of the way it was, and we have the 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 Data copy there. So it's have that cake and eat it too. As for Rutherford with a new um, uh, a new implant, I kind of feel like they need to put an implant there because it's a great source of story things, whether it's comedy, whether it's story solutions, versus like oh, now we've perfected like the synthetic cheekbone and a you're just going to have like a robot eye, but otherwise you're going to be normal. No, let's have him be, Pete, I know it's a term that sometimes gets thrown around to be silly, but I mean it completely sincerely. Let's have him be handy capable with this with this uh, implant that helps him get through the day post, post the original accident. The Mariner uh, Freeman scene towards the end, it really worried me that we were going to a handoff of and the new security officer aboard the Cerritos is my daughter and I'm so grateful they've resisted that at least for now yeah I I don't think that Mariner's resume supports that at all and both mother and daughter and hopefully Starfleet in general want to avoid any sense of nepotism Mariner has not earned that she has not earned that that rank the rank that would come with it i'm assuming lieutenant commander i think that was shax's rank not lieutenant junior grade but regardless she ain't lieutenant material uh junior or full or whatever or commander whatever it might be um she just doesn't have it there but it's a it's an even better story solution to say when the story requires mariner who is ostensibly the most main character of the main characters when the story requires her to be on the bridge for bridge stuff that's the day she's working con or ops, or she's back at one of the, the science panels at the back. For the 
stories that require her to be in the repair bay in engineering mopping up the holodeck whatever it is you can put her there as well particularly with boimler temporarily off the board in terms of being on the cerritos um be able to move her around and still know hey in a jam she really is the alternate thinker that can get the job done boimler at the end of this season winds up on another vessel on the titan we know from the New York Comic Con um, Lower Decks panel that Jonathan Frakes will be returning for season two. Uh, so there's all that, but you know, and and I get it. You, you can you can do a show on two vessels, uh, but it it definitely sets up a a little bit of a shift for the beginning of season two. It does, and I think there too. I mean. There, too, you see this commitment by the show to having something approximating a lasting result. Do I think that we get to the end of season two and Boimler is still not part of the Cerritos? No, I think he's coming back at a certain point. Uh, but I don't know. It, it felt fitting that at the end of the season, things were not back the way they were at the start. Um that notion of go back to the beginning, it's not just obviously an older TV model, but you think of the oldest animation, you know, Pete, what's the canonical watch order of uh, the Roadrunner and the Coyote? Like, no one cares. It's the exact same beginning. It's the exact same end for all of them. And then you reset. So to have that price paid and to have that thing that for us, it does not fit. It's supposed to be the four of them, you know, whether it takes an episode or two or five to get back, so be it. Add to that 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 means more Frakes and more Marina Sirtis. That's welcome news. And Pete, I just have to mention, a bit of a non sequitur, but it just hit me. Do you realize what was missing from Frakes' presence at the uh, Lower Decks virtual panel? It's something that Frakes has been seen with every other time we've ever seen him in person or interviewed. Do you know what was missing? The rest of the beard? Him chomping away on what I assume is Nicorette gum. No gum during the panel. I have not seen the man without gum uh, in a recorded interview or in person in 15 years. Well, it's first time for everything. With that, let's go to Hailing Frequencies. Hailing Frequencies open, sir. We start, as we so oftentimes do, with our Twitter poll. And this, Pete, the bottom vote, I wasn't going to give it a one-star option. Let's go with the aesthetic of the episode. 1.5 pips. You boimed me, got 0%. Two pips, late night pads, got 0%. Three pips, Titan, Ick Smile, got 13%. And then four pips, Big Horta, got 86.7%. So this extremely highly rated, and uh, not just for Lower Decks, one of the highest rated Star Trek episodes we've run a Twitter poll for, which might be a small sample size, but super top ratings there for it, Pete. Yeah, and I think we've ended this season and the enthusiasm for this show, again, is so far exceeded, I think, what anybody expected. Uh, and, of course, some tweets. First one up, Andre Yeager. It's at Dr. Polo in 1983. I have no words to describe my joy in watching this episode and the entire season. I expected the show to be just a fun romp into the Trek universe, but it turned out to be witty, poignant and totally relevant loved all the cameos and you could hear everyone having fun great job uh, we also heard from jt atkins that's at jta is me i wanted to give it three stars because titanic smile is a descriptive is descriptive of my face during this episode and horta is not but i gave it four anyway because as the pack leads would say jt is smart <laughs> um we heard jt from is smart and that's he not is. a that's not an un educated statement to make uh even a pack led clock is right three times a day <laughs> they have a different number system it's very confusing uh we heard from james it's at big killing great end to a great season the writers aren't afraid to shake things up great crossover with the titan will we see a reverse into the live action side they cast some incredible actors which is a good sign please tell me i'm not fooling myself jt atkins replied to that there has to be a crossover into live action it's their destiny crossover also means that my prediction can be fulfilled michael burnham's mariner's ancestor 
Uh, Pete, the only quibble I might have with that is Michael Burnham exited the 23rd century and now is in 3188 or whatever it is. So the opportunity for Michael Burnham to be a mother and produce offspring to end up in the 24th century seems currently unlikely, but time travel can go both ways. Um, I'll just build on what James said, Pete, that they do have some great actors who look by and large look like their characters. So it would not be impossible to get them to Toronto in some sort of post pandemic thing, get them to Toronto to film something, something, even if it's just a short trek, it would be amazing to see yeah. a 13 minute, a 10 minute episode of lower decks live action. Oh, I, I, it has to happen at some point. I'll just add Pete. I know I told this to you off mic, uh, having spent the last couple of weeks, finally watching the first season of the boys on Amazon uh, I got to an episode, this gives nothing away, but I got to an episode where um, Jack Quaid uh, finds himself uh, in flagrante delicto and hearing him making the, the noises one does, I was immediately just like, oh my goodness, this is what Boimler looks like when he's with a woman. And it was a very weird, it was a very weird moment for me as a viewer, but um, yeah, let's, let's make that happen. Uh, Pete, we heard from Stuff Happens. That's at K-C-L-Y-L-E-1. So good, but now what? Lower Decks without Boimler? That's crazy. Some great shout-outs to other shows. TNG crossover. I love that stuff. Poor Shacks, we hardly knew ya. Can't wait for more, but thankfully we've got Discovery coming. Pete, I'll add to that. Of course, we we know we have Season 2 coming as well, so it might be a year minus 10 weeks away, but we're, we're getting closer every every bit. Uh, we heard from Karen Chu, who, by the way, has changed her name because, uh, you know, you got your like at name and then you got your your name name. She's changed her 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 quote unquote real name on Twitter to Karen Chu Chu Chu. She yeah, added the third Chu, Matt. She, she added the third Chu. Genius. Uh, what, that she is. She says, what a finale. I've rarely seen a season of anything that just kept getting better and achieved more momentum as it went. And then brought it into play. So much of what went on before it for a conclusive finale that rocked. This was as good as any episode of Trek I've seen. On last tweet here from TV Pod Industries, that's TV Podcast Industries, I love how this episode built on this wonderful season of Star Trek. It tied up the storylines so well and the cameos were perfect. Really excited to see what this show brings us in season two. So Pete, on that note, we can't look ahead to season two quite yet. We must hear from Starbase One, from Starfleet Command, Pete, Admiral Fred from the Netherlands. I got a little worried, Matt. I'm not going to lie. Uh, ordinarily, Fred will send me a Facebook message that he sent his audio feedback. Did I receive it? And Facebook's made some changes and he had actually said something. I didn't get a notification and then I found it. And, uh, Fred actually admitted to, uh, being a little late with it because he was overseeing a, um, a medical graduation and included a photo of him doing the Hippocratic oath, socially distanced, of course, in the Netherlands, uh, at the medical school where he is a professor. And of course I had to have a little bit of fun with him. You know, I, I said, that's a weird way to do the Vulcan salute. You know, he was doing the, the I guess it's a two finger, uh, oath that the, uh, candidate was also swearing. And I said, you know, that, that doesn't look like the Vulcan salute. <laughs> um, and, uh, he said he would try it out next time. Pete, I don't know if we should hold him to that, but I'd like to propose that maybe we hold him to that. Although I don't want to, don't want to get him in, in, into trouble with the uh, with, with the uh, the newly minted doctors. But shall we hear from the Admiral? Let's do it. Hello, Matt and Pete and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Lower Decks. Season 1, Episode 10. The Season Finale. Sorry about last week's very short feedback, but actually I didn't have much time to make my audio feedback. And I didn't have so much to say about the episode. On the other hand, this whole movie thing last week made it more and more clear what the problem, the psychological problem, is in Mariner towards her mother. 
and, and it was nicely portrayed in that movie. This episode had a lot of nice references. Actually, I didn't recognize Jonathan Frake's voice. Marina Sirtis was very clear that it was really her voice, but I didn't recognize uh, Jonathan's voice so much. So I had to see that on the credits. And I think apart from Q, this is actually the only real Star Trek actors that gave their voices to Lower Deck. And I mean that in the sense of their own characters. Or am I missing somebody? In this episode, a lot of references back to all kinds of series, uh, of course. Which is nice for the real Star Trek freaks. Um, Sorry, fans. And I like the idea that Anson Mariner is Captain Freeman's illegal partner to do all the things she cannot do according to protocol and to Star Trek regulations. Funniest moment was when Bormler and Mariner were talking and he was doing a kissy face uh, about Mariner towards her mother and then they beamed right uh, up onto the bridge. So that was funny. My opinion about the whole series so far is that it is not so funny as some people in also other podcasts say. I'm just not so much of a cartoon man. And you can demote me from Admiral to Ensign or whatever because of this uh, criticism. But I'm, I'm probably just not a cartoon man. I never watched the animated series either. If I remember cartoons that were more or less Looney Tunes... Bugs Bunny, that that were the things I found funny, Roadrunner. And I have a good remembrance for Tom and Jerry. And that's actually because when my father got his Alzheimer, the only thing he still could appreciate and understand and watch with his grandsons was Tom and Jerry. And the nice thing about that is you could watch it again and again and it was every time more or less new for him. And for the kids it's always nice to see everything ten times. So that was all for now. Greetings, looking forward to Star Trek Discovery. Signing off, Fred from the Netherlands with a unknown Star Trek rank. Bye. Well, perish the thought that we would demote. I mean, we're not Starfleet Command. Uh, We're not the presidents of the Federation. So we would never, ever uh, demote Grand Admiral Fred, if, if anything, promote him for his humility. Yes, and certainly uh, a poignant story shared there by Fred. And I think, I, I think if I could suggest to the Admiral, the animated series, you know, the classic Trek animated series, it's worth checking out. I think setting set your expectations properly. If you're like, oh man, this is brand new Star Trek. Let's have everyone over to see it. It's not that good if you're gonna pete here's i i think the audio for the animated series is so great and the animation eh. so if it's like hey while i'm doing something while i'm uh cleaning up downstairs or while i'm uh you know whatever it might be you could have it on and glance at the screen while you're doing something else they're compelling stories it's the familiar voices it's taking advantage of the the world of animation to have things that that uh the original series could not have um, and in a certain regard, that's like Lower Decks. I think of all the big visuals that we had um, in this episode, it would have cost 10 times that amount to do it live action. But here we get it like this week in and week out. And uh, Pete, week in and week out, we've had the support of still Admiral Fred from the Netherlands. Uh, and uh, and certainly that's always been appreciated. Absolutely. Uh, same with all of our patrons on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. Yes, that continued support, keeping us listener supported, particularly this time of year. Some of those, some of those bills start to come in. So most appreciated that people have gone to patreon.com slash fantastic geek and have uh, lent a hand there. Um, Pete, again, looking ahead, in just a few days, we're going to be doing the Lower Deck Season 1 wrap-up. So I would say, you know, I'd say in the next 24 hours of hearing this, dear listener, if you want to share thoughts for the season as a whole, do get that to us. We'll talk contacts in a second. Uh, because real quick, Pete, we need to swap the stage from animation to uh, <laughs> to, to Star Trek Discovery. And, uh, I mean, Pete, we get to do 
four Star Trek podcasts between now and next Saturday. That's a pretty good situation. It's an outstanding situation. So how can people be in touch with you to talk about this now old season of Lower Decks and looking ahead to the new season of Discovery? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 11,587 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with a PH. Like it today. Pete, we will be back on Monday morning with our Lower Decks wrap-up and then Wednesday morning with our Disco Season 3 preview, that ahead of Discovery 301 uh, hitting the digital airwaves on Thursday the 15th in these United States and uh, Canada and uh, on the 16th on Netflix uh, and somewhere in between if you're pirating it. Um, But for now, Pete, we will wrap up the discussion of this episode i will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word we're talking about this later 